Greetings, everyone. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios. It is a beautiful, crisp day here in Florida uh, on the 24th of January. It's down around 50, which is negative 30 uh, for, for, for Floridians. And delighted to have with me in the studio today, Jeremy Hyman, who's not only a classmate of mine from the University of Chicago, but is a professor of biology or ornithology at Western Carolina University. I have that right? Almost correct. All right. Well, Jeremy, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Pretty good. How about you? Fantastic. Fantastic. Good. So tell me a little bit about what, what is, what is, what's your subject area of expertise and what are you teaching? Uh, well, I am a evolutionary biologist. I primarily study birds and my expertise, I guess, is uh, uh, bird behavior. And I mostly study territorial behavior in birds or communication. So we've come a long way since Darwin's finches, is what you're telling me. We have, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you've just published a book, right? Bird yes. Talk, an exploration of avian communication, co-authored yes. with Barbara Ballantyne, who I gather uh, is a professor with you there. What, what's, what's, what is the main thing you found? What, you know, in your studies, what prompted you to say this topic and what we've discovered is really worthy of a full, full book length? Coverage. Well, so this this book is really a review of the literature on uh, on bird communication, and there are lots of, or maybe not lots, but there are multiple bird uh, books on bird song. There are books on bird plumage, uh, but there really wasn't a a current book on bird communication as a whole. Thinking about all the different uh, avenues that birds use to communicate with each other, so song, plumage, dances, all those kinds of things. So this book is uh, a compendium of a review of the literature on all those topics and all the kinds of things that birds communicate about. Mm. So for example, not just trying to find a mate, but uh, you know, parents trying to recognize offspring, uh, trying to give signals that danger is around, all of the different kinds of things that birds communicate about. Huh. And is there, across species and regions, are there some birds that are kind of more socially communicative than others, and some have much more simple, simple grammars, if you will? Yeah, there's a lot of variation. So the most complex communication systems tend to be in species that are very social. They have more interactions, more individuals that they get to know as individuals. And I guess you could say more to talk about if hmm. you have more individuals that you can possibly be talking to. So there's a group of birds known as the chickadees and titmice. In, in Europe, they're known as, uh, as tits. And that's a group of birds that is very social. They, they live in family groups in the breeding season and big flocks in the wintertime. And they're a well-known group of birds for the complexity of their communication. So they're a group of birds that gets a lot of focus when it comes to studies of, uh, of communication in birds. Huh, huh. And so in terms of comparison between um, the utter nonsense that most of our species babbles on about all day long, <laughs> uh, ironically, ironically called Twitter. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, I would hope that birds have somewhat more substantive conversations. And more importantly, are there bird politicians that lie to other birds and <laughs> do things incorrectly? Well, you know, it's funny that one of the things that we discuss in this book, we, there's a, 
opening chapter that's really about the the theory of animal communication before we really get around to talking about birds. And there's a long-standing question, especially when it comes to issues like males displaying for females and showing off their songs or their plumes. What is it that they're really showing to females? Why do females pay any attention? And for a good long while now, there's been one theory that's held sway the longest, which is that communication tends to be honest. It tends to reveal something about the quality or the motivations of the signaler. Because hmm. otherwise, why would anybody pay any attention to it? And so I think a lot about honesty and communication in humans. And uh, one of the biggest questions that comes to my mind over and over again is, why are we so willing to listen to the same people lie over and over and over again? <laughs> When theory tells us that you should give up on those lying people as soon as you've called, caught them out on a lie a few times. You know, I, I think we tend to do that in our interpersonal relationships. You don't put up with lying colleagues or lying friends too many times. Um, but sometimes, uh, well, you mentioned <laughs> politicians. Sometimes we put up with lying politicians for a lot longer. <laughs> I, arguably 100% of the time. Yeah. So maybe, <laughs> and, and clearly there is something strange in, in, in the human genus that we thrive in conditions of not uncertainty, but downright dishonesty. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so clearly that's, that's evolutionarily not disadvantageous <laughs> to be a lion yeah. bag, which might well, not work so well as a crow. Right. And uh, it seems that, uh, you know, being a member of the social group is actually in some cases more important than, uh, than the honesty of the message that you're getting. Or maybe in cases, the honesty of the message that you're getting doesn't really impact your day-to-day -day life quite in the same way. Right. As, uh, the At all. Into things that two chickadees might be talking about. So if one chickadee gives an alarm call that lets the group or suggests to the group that there's a predator around, you know, you can hide from that predator and if they were lying, then you didn't really lose out on too much. You come back out and you start feeding again. If there really was a predator around and they lied and gave you the all clear, then, then you suffer quickly. Quickly, and, and you're out. That's, that may, maybe, I mean, I'm sure you guys have looked at this a lot. You spent a lot more time on this than I do, but you know, I studied anthropology and the more I look at, at human behavior, the closer it gets to you know, less than birds. So I don't <laughs> like it. Um, but maybe it has to do with the immediacy of the message, right? There is no, this $78 trillion bill is going to make us money in 28 years, the Congressional Budget Office says. That, you know, believing that or not, it's kind of irrelevant. It's absurd. You can't test it. Whereas, you know, jump out of the way right now, there's a cat. It, there's, there's an immediate message. Lying about something immediate. Like, that's why it's illegal to yell fire in a movie house. Right. But you can stand up and yell climate change and it doesn't matter. <laughs> Right. Nothing's going to change right. your experience of this movie right now. <laughs> right. No, I think there is something to be said about that. I mean, you know, there are so many, there are so many topics that humans discuss that are not immediate and also topics that we discuss that are really beyond our comprehension. And so you you take people's word for it a lot. I, I don't say, I don't mean beyond our comprehension right. species, 
But if I'm listening to an economist talk, for example, um, I don't believe the exact opposite. You'll be on steady ground. <laughs> well, if you listen to enough economists, you'll hear very intelligent people giving opposite opinions. So then who are you going to believe? Yeah. That was Harry Truman's great thing, right? He said, "He said, what, they, what do you really want for Christmas, Mr. President? He said, I want a one-armed economist. They said, why? <laughs> because every time they walk in here, they tell me this, and I'm about to do something. And they say, on the other hand, <laughs> sorry, I can't resist that. Good quote. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think there's a, a lot more, um, oh, I can't think of the right word, uh, bowing to authority when it comes to, you right. know, Flex things that that humans talk about, you know. What's the most? What's the most kind life of life is simpler? Life is simpler. What is the most kind of surprising or 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 innovative idea or finding in your field that has occurred since you began? Is it something that's like, wow, I really didn't see that, I didn't expect that, but it fits because of why? Is there anything like that that's occurred? Well, you know, just talking about alarm calls, for example, that's one that's really caught people's attention because of the way it relates to human language. So the idea that an animal could produce one alarm call that means that there's a snake present and another alarm call that means that there's a hawk present. Uh, you know, there was a time, at least, when that was a pretty hard idea for some people to believe that, you know, hmm. that animals had even that rudimentary a language. It was first described in, uh, in vervet monkeys in the late 70s that they had different acoustically distinct alarm calls, essentially different words for different predators. And then, you know, there was a long gap of time between, before people described similar things in other animals such as, such as birds. So there's been a lot of research in the last 10 years or so on the ability of, uh, or uh, you know, essentially on the vocabulary of birds and what kind of syntax, what kind of words do they have? What kind of syntax matters? You know, how close are they to having anything that resembles even a, a rudimentary language? Hmm. Um, so that, that's been a, a big topic for a while. Yeah. Closer to the kinds of things that I studied for, um, or that I've done research on, you know, I think a lot of people are surprised to learn that birds can recognize other individuals on the basis of their vocalizations. Uh, so males and females in a group or of a pair rec probably recognize each other on the basis of their vocalizations. Mm. Especially if they're in big flocks, they can recognize each other to you know, keep track of individuals. A territorial male songbird, when it sings, it can recognize all of its neighbors on the basis of song to understand if everybody's in the right place and if there are, no, if there are intruders in the neighborhood and things like that. Hmm. Um, and then maybe more recently, people have started to pay a little bit more attention to, to individual variation in communication. Uh, in other words, some individuals might be... Uh, much more aggressive than others when it comes to defending their territory. And that might be revealed in their songs in some way. Hmm. When it comes to alarm calls, some individuals might be a lot more jumpy or scared and they might give more alarm calls in a certain situation than another. And that means that you have to recognize the messenger a little bit to get the message. 
So that's something that I've been interested in working on for a while. I haven't really gotten that far with it. Um, so this may be a layman's interpretation, but I hear you telling me that Chicken Little is a documentary. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. I remember being blown away when I read um, Hold Dobler and Wilson's The Ants, right? About when they were mm -hmm. you know, showing the, the powerful communication patterns sociobiologically socio amongst insects. Right. Does, does that same model of communication translate into the avian world or are they just convergent evolution and the way they communicate have nothing to do with, with each other? Oh, I think they're pretty similar. I mean, I, I think the general rules that govern communication are probably true throughout all communicating animal species. The, uh, you know, obviously ants use a lot of chemical communication. Birds are much less well known for chemical communication, although there is some evidence now that they, uh, they do have olfactory senses and can, mm. and can smell each other. Um, but the general rules, I think, are probably the same. Uh, so ants recognize their neighbors. They fight with their neighbors. They have neighbors that they fight with more and some neighbors that they fight with less. They have alarm pheromones that they right. put out. Somebody's invading their nest. So um, yeah, the basic list of things that you might communicate with if you're an insect are probably pretty similar to if you're hmm. a bird. That's cool. And what... I was always fascinated. What um, what are the things that and maybe may, may change from year to year, maybe consistent. What are the things that tend to really grab your students' imagination? You know, the topics that you're covering are the things they react to more excitedly than others. Yeah, it really changes from one semester to the next. I um, so I teach three classes regularly. One is a animal behavior class. I'm teaching that this semester. Some springs I teach an ornithology class. And then I also teach a, a core level introduction to ecology and evolution class. So the things that catch students' attention depend on what class it is. And sometimes there are more current event type things that right. turn their attention more. Uh, I try to predict what's going to catch their attention. I'm not too successful with that. <laughs> And other times I, you know, students get really excited about a topic one year. And so I make a bunch of slides on it. And then the next year I give that same material and they, seems like they couldn't care less. Huh. Not a great answer to your question. I'm oh, it's, it's, it's fascinating for, for me. I'm stalling to see if I can come up with something. <laughs> That's right, I'm stalling. That's, um, well, on a, on a far more pedestrian level, there are, <laughs> as we discussed earlier, far more birders in the world than there are ornithologists. Um, right. And are you so petty as to be down amongst us lesser mortals? Do you have a life list? Oh, I do, yeah. Is, is it a secret number or will you share it with the class? Off the top of my head, I actually don't know what it is. For North America, it's somewhere uh, around 585 or something like nice. that. Nice. Um, For those listeners who don't know, birders, the more obsessive ones, keep a list of every bird they've ever seen, where they saw it. And every time they see a new species, they add it to their number. And, right. Which and there are there are how many species currently believed to exist now? What six thousand or something? Or worldwide, it's probably closer to ten thousand. Yeah, depending on how you. Oh. Um, North America, probably about eight hundred. Uh, but a lot of those are things that don't regularly occur in North America. You have to chase them down when a, a rare vagrant um, right. 
from the Europe. The wind blows them from the Caribbean up into the States. Right, right. right. Uh, so, you know, I was a bird watcher from when I was a little kid. So I started building that life list early and yep. you know, it plateaus fast. <laughs> there are still a lot of North American birds that I would like to see. Most of them are either Rocky Mountain or, or far northern birds. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll take the trips to see them someday. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's funny. I, I got my first. Never forget it. I got National Geographic guide to birds of north america when i was i think eight or nine. Oh, really yeah really early i remember that i remember i was absolutely thrilled when i identified a black-legged kittiwake at the beach as opposed to just being a seagull right and yeah i had like an older cousin mock me for that until i broke up the book and showed him that he was an idiot for which of course i got held under water for 30 seconds <laughs> <laughs> so there's a feedback loop in every every society uh, right. <laughs> and as a major dork, one of the, my biggest thrills was finally, I always wanted to see a stellar jay because it looked so mm. blue. And yeah. finally, I was out in Colorado years ago and I was in a friend's backyard just sitting there and there it was. <laughs> yeah. I was really thrilled. He's like, You're a major loser. So that made <laughs> You've got an abundance of ornithological riches here. You're paying no attention to. Um, yeah. Well, it, it, I urge everyone to go get a copy of the book, Bird Talk. An Exploration of Avian Communication by Ballantyne and Hyman. Uh, fascinating read. Is there anything that, that you would say that, that people who have not been kind of already bitten by the birding bug, uh, what would prompt them to get into the great outdoors and start enduring mosquitoes to see that rare find? <laughs> well, I think like you said, I mean, for so many people, there is simply that people refer to it as the spark bird some bird that caught your attention that you never realized was there before. And in North America, there are a lot of beautiful birds and sometimes they're small and sometimes they're way up in the trees. But, um, you know, I gave a talk at a local elementary school uh, last semester and I showed the students pictures of, you know, flamingos and penguins. And I said, well, you know, do you know this bird? Do you know this bird? And then I, and toucans, and then I showed them pictures of these beautiful North American warblers that migrate between Central America and, and the U.S. every year. And I said, what about this bird? Do you know its name? Do you know where it lives? Mm. I told them, this bird lives in your backyard. <laughs> this is a North Carolina bird. They're all in the woods here. You should know this bird. Um, so, you know, I think there are, it, it just takes a little time to, to focus and pay attention and and. You know, to decide you're going to have some appreciation for the natural world around you. I've heard so many stories about people during the pandemic, you know, having been in their house and staring at their bird feeder for longer than they ever have before. Mm. That was the start of something new for them. And so, you know, something like our book, if it's going to serve a purpose, maybe it's to get people to think a little bit more deeply about the lives of the individuals and not just building your list of right. species you can see but appreciating a little bit more about the complexity of the lives of, of the common things in your backyard and realizing that they're, you know, they're living animals, living beings that are communicating with each other about all sorts of things that are important to them. Ah, that is a good idea. And your comment about the bird feeder um, has given me a new hypothesis that I'm going to run by you first before right. we get into a broader audience. I think that Anthony Fauci is actually in the bag for big birding. <laughs> Could this be. The whole thing 
was to get you to sit still and watch the bird feeder outside your front window. Well, I think I'm going to have to end this conversation <laughs> as I found out. Uh, I'm on my way to my safe house. Yeah. <laughs> so terrible theory, terrible theory. But anyway, it's, it's, it's a delight to catch up, Jeremy. Thanks so much. I hope the book sells enormously. Everyone should go on Amazon and buy it immediately. We'll put the link <laughs> in the description below. Um, but beyond that, you know, uh, your, your exposition is why people should get outside and do some birding. I would just add, what's the worst that's going to happen? You have a nice walk in the woods. Exactly. <laughs> there are worse things to do. <laughs> there are worse things to do. And there's certainly, I will wrap up, this ties in so nicely with how we end every messy times where we adjure our listenership to turn off the news because they're just lying to you and making you crazy <laughs> in the messy times. And I'm going to change that, turn off the news and get a pair of binoculars and go outside and look for some birds. Yeah. And learn how to recognize them by song too. That's important. That's important. <laughs> Thank you so much. Sure. <laughs>